0: Romans chapter 13, um, is these first seven verses, are some of the most difficult passages, really, in the book of Romans. Not from a theological point of view, per se, but just trying to wrestle with what Paul writes here. In fact... Whole books have been written on this one small section alone because of the controversy that it raises. Now, we can't explore all avenues and all nuances of this section, but we need to jump in and take a look at it to some degree. So let's uh, at least get a survey and understanding of it in some sense, even if we can't exhaust its meaning this morning. But in Romans chapter 13, it says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the, to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay them. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Growing up as a child of the 60s, this is not what I wanted to hear. And I don't know even if you were, were growing up in the 60s. I don't know if there's ever a time we want to hear some of these words. But hear them we must. Now, what's interesting in this passage, of course, look at chapter 13, the very first verse. Everyone must submit. So he's not just a- addressing his words to those of us who love Yeshua. Those of us who love his word and therefore desire to be obedient to it. He says everyone must submit To the governing authorities. And all kinds of questions arise in our minds right away, right? Like, isn't there ever a time... That's the first question that comes to my mind. Isn't there ever a time we should not submit to the governing authorities? That's the first thing that comes into my mind. I don't know about yours. But, you know, as Paul writes, the first reason he gives, and really the starting point, ought not to be, is there ever a time that we ought to rebel... But the starting point is to recognize that all authorities, all governing authorities that are established on the earth, Paul says, have been established by God. And so therefore the first order of business is to recognize the sovereignty of God in everything, even governing authorities, and thus as we submit ourselves to them, we are doing so recognizing God has established these governing authorities over us. They did not arise into that position in and of themselves. God has placed them there, is what Paul says. I know you don't like that. You know. I don't like it very much either. But let me remind you that this is certainly true. Now, Paul is writing in the early 60s. He's writing to the believers in Rome right at the heart of of the seat of the governing establishment of his day. It seems right that he would address this issue because the believers are living right under the auspices and oversight of the Roman government and empire. That's where they are. And at this point in time, it would be nice if the governing leader, the emperor, the Caesar, was a good and relatively humane leader then we could all say, well, it's obvious why Paul says that. The ruler at the time was a humane ruler, and therefore we are to recognize all humane rulers as rulers that have been set up by the authority of God and His sovereignty. But unfortunately, the ruler at this time is perhaps one of the worst rulers in all of history. We're talking about Nero, and we're talking about that one who had made open season on the believers. In fact, Paul himself will die at the hand of this emperor before whom he just wrote, we are to be submissive to all governing authorities. But we don't have to look at Rome. Paul himself earlier in chapter 9 said that Pharaoh himself was raised up by God to be an instrument by which God would demonstrate His judgment. Now, I do not say that we ought to pray for that kind of calling in our lives. None of us wants to pray, Lord, you know, uh, call me to be an example of your judgment. But that's what Paul said was the case of Pharaoh, another cruel ruler, particularly with respect to the Jewish people whom he had enslaved for 430 years. Yet Paul says that God raised him up for this specific He even says to Abraham that your descendants will be slaves for 400 years, looking forward to that time when the Egyptians would rule. But it's not just Nero and Pharaoh. If you look with me for a moment to Daniel chapter 4, another terrible ruler was the king of Babylon. Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, and in Daniel chapter 4, and remember, it was Nebuchadnezzar who had invaded Judah, carried off the people of Israel, the southern kingdom, for 70 years, and in 586, destroyed the temple itself. And in Daniel chapter 4, and you can imagine, he was pretty much gloating over his accomplishment, and perhaps thought of himself as superior to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for after all, he just took his people captive and just destroyed the temple that was built under Solomon the Great. But here in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in that dream, God tells him that he's going to be struck And he's going to be judged, he's going to experience a time of insanity, it will last for seven years. What the medical profession refers to as lycanthropy, which is like werewolf's disease. Which individuals that go through this process, their hair grows long, their nails grow long. Well, you could read it here. And for seven years, he hangs out in the wilderness, in the forests the king of Babylon. This is the dream that he has. And in, and it occurs in reality. But in chapter 4, verse 17, in the dream, this is what he sees or hears, the decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Later, Daniel will interpret the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. So if you go down in chapter 4, look at verse 25. When Daniel interprets the dream, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, seven years will pass by you for, for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And if that wasn't enough, if you look at chapter 17, a voice from heaven Then speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, beginning in verse 31, the words which were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And gives them to anyone he wishes. Now fortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, he does learn the lesson. Because if you look at verse 34, he says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Paul says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And because of his sovereignty, we are to recognize first and foremost the governing authorities over us, whether good or whether bad. Now, does that mean that there is never a time to resist or rebel? Of course, there are times to resist and times to rebel, but that's not our starting point, although that's where we most often like to start. Our starting point is to recognize God is sovereign and the governing authorities over us have been established ultimately by God for His particular purpose at a particular point in time. Now, what's also interesting here is that there are two Greek words that are used in the Brit Shah, the New Covenant Scriptures, that are translated with respect to power with regard to political power or the exercise of power within a political context. One is the word kratos. We get words like democracy from it. Democratic, which means rule. Kratos means rule or power. Demos means people. So a democracy is ruled by the people. A plutocracy is rulers by those who are wealthy. A theocracy is ruler by God. So kratos is the word that is used for like the naked expression of power. In fact, it's used in a very interesting place. If you want to turn with me, it's found in Hebrews chapter 2. And in verse 14 it says, "...since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity." Speaking of Messiah who took on human form, "...so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death." That is, the evil one. In this case, the word kratos is used because the evil one has the naked use of power, one might say, in order to kill, and that's what Paul, said, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, says in chapter two. But the word is kratos. But what's interesting in in Romans chapter thirteen, seven times, the Greek word exousia is used, translated as authorities, and exousia means that one that has delegated. Authority, not just blanket, indiscriminate use of power or might, but has a right to have authority or delegated authority. For example, in John, it says that we are given those of us who believe on the name of the Son of God. He has given us the right to be called children of God. The word there, right, is the word exousia. He's given us the authority, delegated authority, to be called children of God. Because we've recognized Messiah to be our Savior and our Lord. Here in Romans, he's speaking of the kind of authority that is delegated to those who stand over us. And by use of this word, Paul is not saying this is a blanket authority that must be obeyed in every instance. But rather, because it is delegated, those that have this authority have a responsibility to God for how they exercise that authority. And thus they are called to account for how they exercise that authority, use that authority, and they are called to account to God. It is true in our society that there is what is referred to as the separation of church and state. And I think that's a good thing. Should have no should have no enforcement over those of us who believe in God. And those of us who believe in God ought not to have authority over the government to dictate how a given government ought to operate. But while there may be a separation between church and state, there is never a separation between state and God. All governing authorities will answer to him one day for how they have exercised the authority that has been entrusted to them. And thus this past Thursday was the National Day of Prayer. We come together to pray for our governing authorities and our leaders that they would exercise their authority rightly. And if they fail to do so, we certainly have the right to speak out, to resist in one manner or another, and ultimately they will stand before God and give an accounting for how they have exercised that authority. Here in the United States, we've been most privileged that we have the idea of law that stands over our governing authorities as well as over its citizens. It's very interesting how that has come about. You may or may not be familiar, but it was a Scottish Presbyterian minister by the name of Samuel Rutherford who wrote a book entitled Lex Rex, Law is King, that began to set in motion the challenging challenges to rule by a monarchy. That one man could dictate, or dictatorships, one man could dictate what he would want to occur that would affect a whole society. In his volume, he was saying that it is not man who stands as king, but laws must stand as king, to which all of mankind must submit. That book then made its way into the hands of William Blackstone, who is a British jurist who then incorporated these ideas into common law in England and from William Blackstone it had a tremendous effect on John Witherspoon John Witherspoon was a Presbyterian minister in the great colony of New Jersey and the only the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence and he incorporated the ideas of Samuel Rutherford into the United States Constitution. Of course, Samuel Rutherford, where this all started in Western ideas, got his ideas from the Bible. And so because of his biblical literacy, he saw that these things were not just important in a religious context, but they were important in society as a whole. And so Paul tells us here, that all individuals are to submit to governing authorities because those authorities have been established by God. And those who have those authorities have it by means of delegation. And therefore they are responsible with respect to how they act and how they govern those they are entrusted to. But Paul's concern is not with the governing authorities. Paul's concern is with you and I. And so he says, if we recognize the sovereignty of God, if we are alert to the biblical teachings of right and wrong, then we are ones that are to submit to our authoritative, authoritative, authorities and leaders and governing authorities. And we are also ones who are to be holding our authorities to account as we pray for them and as we consider decisions that are made that affect each and every one of us. But that's not the only reason he tells us, not only because God is sovereign, but the second thing he tells us is because the governing authorities have a sword in which they can punish evildoers and they can reward those who are doing right. In other words, implicit in Paul's idea is the notion that those in authority have a sense of right and wrong. That they do know the difference between right and wrong because they can use the sword to punish wrongdoers and they can use the sword or whatever at their means to reward those who do right. So there is a sense of conscience. And by the way, if you look at Romans 13, there's another interesting little phrase that sort of jumps at me in verse 5. At the end of all of his argumentation, he says, Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment... Not only because of God's sovereignty, but look at this little phrase. But also because of conscience. If you talk about a phrase that really needs to be stated, or I might say a phrase that is an understatement of understatements... It is certainly that. It reminds me like in the book of Genesis when God creates the sun and the moon and the greater light for day, the smaller light by night. And then this little five-word phrase. And he also, by the way, just so that we don't forget, he created the stars. You know, the billions and billions of quasars, the billions and billions of stars that are, suns that are so much larger than our own. And just in one little phrase, and also he created the stars. What an understatement. And this is like that too. Not only should we obey the government's, because the authorities because of this or that, but also because, oh, our conscience. And so he's sort of saying to us that we have an, an in. Inner sense of right and wrong that God has created us all with, but we don't live up to that conscience that is sure. But we know when we have not done right. And we know when we have. And thus he tells us that we are to be submitting ourselves to the governing authorities because we know it's the right thing to do, no matter how rebellious we might like to be in a given occasion. Now, as I said, time is moving. I can't get into all of these things. Certainly it was right, just so that I put it on the table. Certainly it was right to resist Adolf Hitler. Certainly it was right to seek to undermine him. And in the case of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to be part of a plot that would seek to overthrow him and even to to, uh, turn his lights out to end his life. You know, but we have to remember what Paul's concern is. His concern is that we do what is right. And it means first and foremost that we are submissive. And by the way, there are many who resisted Adolf Hitler, who paid dearly with their lives. Martin Niemoller, who was a pastor in Germany, for years he, or for a short time and a few years attempted to work along with the Nazis. And then realized that this was an impossibility, and in his church he continued to proclaim the truths of God's word. Finally, he was arrested seven years he spent in Dachau because of his proclamation of the truth of God's Word. And I can't help but think of the ministry he must have had to the victims and inmates in that prison for seven years. Or individuals like Corey Tenboon and her family that sought to hide Jewish people from the governing authorities. Or individuals like Raoul Wallenberg that had forged and written thousands, something like 20,000 visas for Jewish people, particularly Hungarian Jews, that they might escape the extermination camps. There are others, ambassadors, one from Japan who was an ambassador to Lithuania that was writing visas for Jews as Japanese citizens so, so as to escape Europe and put them on trains across Russia to make it to Shanghai, to be put on a boat in order to make it to Japan. So please don't misunderstand me. But Paul's words also need to be taken into consideration, particularly when you realize the duress and the kind of government he lived under and suffered under during his day. And yet the first rule of business for us is to be submissive to our governments and to our authorities, to be in prayer for them and respectful. Now, if I can, just draw to the conclusion here of this section. He says, give everyone what you owe him. I don't like this idea of taxes, but if you owe taxes, pay them. But if revenue, revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, then honor. And I had to think about that. What what does the scripture teach us about honoring? Who are we to honor? Let me just share a few verses with you in closing. Take a look at 1 Peter with me. After the book of James, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Here it is. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So who are we supposed to honor that Paul tells us in Romans? We're to honor our leaders. We're to honor Our King. Now, I just have to say this. I'm not a big fan of our current administration. And maybe perhaps some of you aren't either. But I do think it is wrong when we speak of him in the derisive kind of ways that many people do. It is not honoring of our president to speak of him in the way that many believers do because they don't like his policies in one direction or another. I think we're wrong in doing that. We can certainly speak our mind against policies we don't agree with, but he is our president and he has been elected by the, voting, the votes of the people. And we are to show him proper respect and honor, even as Peter and Paul tell us. Now, you may not like to hear that, but you can take that up with God. In any case, <laughs> honor the king. We need to honor our president. We need to honor those that are serving in public office. It is true. Many of our tax dollars are being wasted and misused. We need to speak out about that. But we need to pray for those who are in leadership. And we need to honor them for who they are and what positions they hold. Not only are we to honor the king... But one of my favorite verses, if you take to if you turn with me to the book of of Timothy, take a look at first Timothy. In chapter five, verse seventeen, the elders who direct the affairs of the congregation well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching so we need to be showing honor to the king but we also need to be showing honor not that i feel that we've not been showing honor but we need to be showing honor to those who lead in our congregations and particularly those who teach and proclaim the word of god not only that he says they are to be considered with double honor but that's not all of course In the Mosaic Law, as well as in the book of Ephesians, children are to honor their parents. And Paul reminds us that that is the first commandment with a promise, that your days may be lived long on the earth, and that your days might be good days and enjoyable days. But perhaps as I begin to move further on in my days on the earth, Take a look at Leviticus chapter 19. This will shortly become the favorite verse of some of us here. But in Leviticus 19 verse 32, it says, Rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God. I am the Lord. As our days grow older and our hair gets grayer, (laughs) we are to rise in the presence of the aged and honor the elderly in our midst. Oftentimes, they are marginalized in our society. But Leviticus tells us we are to honor them and to even rise in their presence. Does 58 count as elderly? Is that, is that? No, no. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right, just wondering. And lastly, not only should we honor the king, not only should we honor our leaders in our congregations, not only ought we to honor our parents, not only ought we to honor the aged, and there's some dispute as to when that begins, But we are to first and foremost honor and revere God for I am the Lord. And in honoring Him, we are to submit to our authorities. In honoring Him, we are to respect those that are in positions of respectability. And as ones who honor the Lord... We are to pray for our leaders that they might serve us well and utilize their authority appropriately. For if they do not, they will answer to God who has granted them this authority to serve us as they do. One last thing you'll notice in Romans 13, it's like seven times he uses the word exousia, authority, and three times he makes reference to the fact that these who are in authority are servants of God. And thus we would do them great service if we would pray for them. Let's pray.